The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. Well, you just looked around and you saw all these players being moved. And you knew well, you could be part of that. And that was something I didn't want to happen. I love New York. And that's not the way to trade Tom Seaver. So you knew things could happen. So it wasn't fun to be around there to see all your friends that you grew up with started being dismantled. And uh, the road trips were not fun anymore. Ed Cranepool is a Mets legend. He played his entire career in Queens. Has the third most hits in franchise history behind only David Wright and Jose Reyes. He's in the team's Hall of Fame, but when he was first on the Mets' radar, there was no nothing, no history. He signed at 17 years old before the Mets could even field a team. He joined in 1962 for their expansion season, then had to grow up real quick around a crew of aging veterans that the team signed to market to fans like old Frank Thomas, Richie Ashburn, and Gil Hodges. Ultimately, Cranepool saw the entire trajectory as they went from laughing stocks in 62 to World Series champs seven years later, and then the downward spiral after the 73 World Series. Cranepool remembers being a celeb in New York. While I had Hodges not passed away, there was more greatness ahead for the Mets and how it felt to watch Tom Seaver get traded, the darkest day in Mets history. This is Ed Cranepool's New York accent. Ed, how you doing? I'm doing great in New York. I came up to visit. I left Florida. It was very hot and humid, so I wanted to come to see the Mets, and I'm seeing a lot right now. You know, you grew up in the New York City area. You grew up in the Bronx. You went to James Monroe High School as well, and so what is your youth like in the 40s and 50s in the Bronx at that time? Well, there's a lot of sports. We were playing always in the playgrounds and keeping ourselves busy. This way you stay off the streets. But uh, New York had a lot of action, a lot of teams. You had the three three New York teams in baseball. So you had plenty of action here. And, and of course, when the Dodgers and Giants left, it left the void and the Mets came around and, and I think solved that whole thing. What was your team when you're growing up in the Bronx and there's the, the Yankees, Giants, and Dodgers? You don't have much of a choice when you're brought up in the Bronx. You know, you got to be a Yankee fan, and I was. And I watched the Yankees until I signed in 62, and I signed with the Mets for an opportunity to get to the major leagues. It took me about two days to join Sandy Koufax out in California. He pitched no hitter and struck out 13. So that was a tough way to start, and it it, uh, lasted for 18 years, and I thought it was pretty good after a while. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be kind of daunting when you finally make the bigs, then you're facing Sandy Koufax. you got to be like, I'll never get a hit in Major League Baseball. Well, I told Casey it was a little tough the first night, so, you know, he didn't put me in there that day, and I was glad because he saved me an 0-for-1. I think Gene Woodling pinched hit and struck out on three pitches, so I said, you know, before I go back to college, let me just watch a few games. So you're growing up in the Bronx in New York City when there is no Mets. The Mets start in 1962. You're just a teenager. So when you are acquired by the franchise, there's no history, there's no team name, there's no stadium, there's no nothing. What, what are you feeling like when you're part of a, a Mets franchise that doesn't really even exist yet? Well, I, you know, they followed me for a couple of years in high school and uh, I knew they were thinking about signing me and they, they came to the house right after graduation, and they weren't going to leave. So I, I, 
had to think about it and didn't think too long. I signed a large contract and played in the major leagues that year. So to me, it was it was a great uh, choice of getting to the major leagues. It was a little tougher than I expected. Obviously, I was 17. My roommate was Frank Thomas. He was 35. We didn't have a whole lot of things in common. So it made playing on the road uh, difficult. But, uh, you know, you get accustomed to it. You get experience. And at the end, uh, when I was 34, 35, looking around, I said, I'm the old guy. I think it's time to go. Well, that's the most amazing thing is that the 62 Mets were built largely around veteran players. The Mets organization wanted some familiar names to sell to the fans. It wasn't really about winning at that point in time. And so you are 17 and you're surrounded by a bunch of guys at the twilight of their careers. How bizarre was that being thrust into that situation? Well, the only thing that was good about it was there were a lot of stars that came back to New York for the Mets. And, and I, you know, recognized the names. I knew the players. So I was accustomed to seeing them, watching the Giants, Dodgers, the Yankees, you know, and they were there and alongside of myself. And uh, it made it easy. Casey was easy to play for. He liked the young guys. He liked to work with them. He liked to see them improve. And it made it fun to play for the Met organization. And the fans loved us. There are no better fans in the world than the New York uh, fans and they really supported the ball club through the the bad times and of course the good times were you starstruck by any of those older veterans future hall of famers that were on your team well i just followed the yankees basically uh, but of course you know i knew willie mays and all those great stars the giants had and the dodgers one of the players from the dodgers gil hodges joined our ball club as a player and then became our manager and he was instrumental in turning the ball club around in 68, 69, and we win a pennant and changed the whole the, uh, outlook for the Met organization. And we could have won more pennants if Gil stays around and doesn't pass away. Casey Stengel, as you said, was your first manager, the first manager in, uh, in Mets history. What was that experience like? You had so many years with those incredible Yankees teams, so many championships. Then he, he kind of played a bit of a clown prince role as um, – almost a fan a, a fan character for the Mets. What was that like? Well, he did that really to take the pressure off the players. He knew we had a bad ball club. Uh, we had a lot of players at the twilight of their careers, and uh, he was taking the pressure off them, handled the press and did it well, and he picked the young players that were joining the ball club, and uh, he made it work. And he tried to work with us and uh, try to improve us, and, uh, you know, he gave us the beginning, he took the pressure off the Met players, and, uh, you know, he he was great to play for. I enjoyed it. Uh, he was always there for the young guys, willing to work with you, stay as long as you want. He was the first one at the ballpark, the last one to leave. So we had a good time with him, and he was always sticking up for the players. If you went out on the field and give your best effort every day for him, he was in your corner, and I'll tell you what, it made it fun. What was it like to be part of the worst team in baseball history, or one of them? 120 losses and still a, a modern-day record. Was there embarrassment or shame, or you're just 17 years old, so you're just loving life because you're actually playing big league ball? I was loving life. I'll tell you what, I didn't worry about winning, losing 120 games. I was only there for part of that season. I expected us to win uh, a lot sooner, but little did I know that one man can't lead a ball club 
you need a whole team. And it took us seven years to develop that. And of course we did. We were the first franchise, uh, you know, that uh, was coming new into the league that uh, won a championship. So we did it pretty quickly. By 68, 68, as you said, you guys are competitive. By 69, you go on the Miracle Mets run and captivate the city, captivate the nation. There are magazines with you guys on the front of it, and the Miracle Mets are now in a national sensation. What was it like to go from 120 losses, seeing that thing through, to then becoming national stars and celebrities? Well, it happened quickly, but uh, we were all the same age. We were having fun together, and we had a good organization. And we developed very quickly. We brought up Seaver and Kuzman and, you know, all those guys around me made it fun to play. Winning was great. So losing is tough also. You know, when, you, when you're losing every day, that's contagious, and so is winning. But uh, I enjoyed winning a lot more. Like I said, when Gil passed, we took over another manager, Yogi Berra, that had, you know, some luck on his side, and we won in 73, but we should have won after that, and we didn't, and, of course, a lot of things changed. And, you know, 1979 came around pretty quick for myself, and I decided to retire. I had been on the roller coaster too many years, so we got out. But, um, you know, it's not fun losing, and the Mets, I see them struggling right now. But hopefully they'll rebuild in a hurry and get back into it. The fans here in New York love winning. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see us in a pennant race. Gil Hodges is the manager of the 69 team that wins the World Series. Uh, he develops health problems. It passes away abruptly shortly thereafter. How many more pennants, how many more World Series appearances do you think there would have been for that team if Gil had stayed alive? Well, I know we would have won in 73. Uh, we lost that World Series in seven games to Oakland, but we never got back into it. After 73, we went straight down, and uh, it wasn't fun. Losing the second time around is not uh, an enjoyable thing to have, especially when you're eliminated at the All-Star break. So it got tired, it got old, and uh, you know you have to get out if you're not having fun. What what would Gill have done differently in 73 to where you guys would have beaten the A's instead of lost to him? Well, that would have been easy. He probably would have pitched George Stone in the sixth game and we win the pennant. We don't have to wait. You Seaver up early and, uh, you know, lose the sixth game with uh, Seaver on the mound and then come back in the seventh with uh, John Matlack, who was a good pitcher, but he wasn't Tom Seaver. And, of course, we had nine guys to use on Sunday but we were eliminated on Saturday, and that really took the heart out of the Mets. In 69, what's the moment that you go, oh, we got magic this year? This is is our season. Because there were so many moments where it's like, wow, that happened, wow, that happened, wow, that happened. What was the one for you? I think when the, the ball hits the top of the fence against Pittsburgh and comes back into the field and Cleon relays it in to Buddy and we get the guy out at the plate. I mean, we saw so many miracles happening that uh, all positive things on our side. And, uh, you know, we played good defense, good pitching, and we controlled the game. So we won a lot of games the second half of the season, over 60 games we win. And, you know, it makes it very competitive for us to uh, catch five ball clubs, go past them, catch the clubs. They were up by 10 games. 
and we wound up beating them by eight, nine games. So, you know, things really went well for us, but we were a good ball club. We, we beat the clubs we had to play, and uh, we beat them every series, and we beat the Cubs. You know, they'd come in from four games, we'd knock them out four games. So that's a lot of games to pick up in a hurry. But uh, it was good, and, you know, Gil taught us the proper way to play the game, pitching and defense and the club to scores, you know, enough runs. You know, going to win, but uh, we didn't score a whole lot of runs, but we scored enough with our pitching and defense. We didn't give up any, and that's the important thing. Being part of the 69 Mets is a little bit like being part of the 86 Mets. You live forever. You're a legend forever just by being touched by that experience. And fans, fifty, nearly 55 years later, still adore you guys in 69. How did being part of that team that season change your life? Well, I think, you know, we won the pennant at the right time. There were a lot of things happening in the world back in, in 69 uh, with the Vietnam War, all the different things, Woodstock, a lot of crazy things were going on. The near country was an uproar, you know, and a lot of things uh, negative. And they gave people something to think about other than everyday life and watch the Mets. And we, we drew a lot of fans, and, uh, you know, it really was great. And everyone seems to be there, want to be part of it. So you win the pennant on the right years, and, and nobody lets you forget it. What's it been like to have a lifetime of being born a New Yorker and winning an iconic championship in New York, and it clearly being part of your identity for the rest of your life? Well, you can't walk anywhere. You can't go anywhere in New York because there's always somebody that uh, – you know, wants to talk about 69. It was a great time in New York, and uh, it's been tremendous for myself. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed retirement. I've met a lot of nice people. New York's a great town, and especially when you win. That's it. That, to me, is the key to sports. You know, it's great to play, but you want to win a championship and put your name on the city, and we were able to do that. I think the best part of the entire run was the Ed Sullivan show and you guys all going on there and singing You Gotta Have Heart. To me, that's the highlight of the 69 season. Well, we did a lot of things back in those days. We also went to Vegas for three weeks and performed out there. So we were entertainers on and off the field, you know, and we had a lot of fun doing it. And we had such a close group of guys that we all stuck together. And even to this day, we still have a number of players that uh, socialize together. I'm very friendly with Ronnie Sabota and Art Shamsky in New York, and we do things socially together. There's, there's so many guys, you know, that are still around and still together. What was a couple of days in the late 60s in Vegas with a bunch of 20-something guys from New York that fun just won a championship? That's got to be a pretty wild road trip. It was a it was a fun trip there. We were there three weeks. We could have stayed another two or three weeks. They invited us to continue to stay on the on the road. We uh, were really not entertainers. We're not singers. You know, we we're not comedians. And we tried to do it. We did it for a couple of weeks, and we were the second leading drawer out there. And uh, good enough to stay, but uh, not good enough for us. We decided not to stay there, and we left. And we got a taste of it, and we found out we better stick to playing baseball. But uh, we did that for a couple of years, and uh, it's great. It's been great in New York. I still follow the Mets. Uh, I still watch the Yankees on occasion, but uh, I'm still a Mets fan. 
What was the show about? You guys went out there and performed for three weeks. What does a bunch of baseball players do as a show? Well, we had a great uh, film clip out there showing us how we messed up so many times and lost ball games, how we started <laughs> making great plays and, uh, you know, winning a lot of games at the end. And uh, we had a song, The uh, Impossible Dream, and uh, they had lyrics to it, you know, stretching around baseball. And uh, it became a great show and the people loved it. So we enjoyed ourselves out there. And I'd probably like to do it again now, but uh, I better, better think twice. <laughs> you were part of a team that won a championship in 69, went back to the World Series in 73, but by the time we get to the mid to late 70s, the wheels had come off the franchise, ownership had changed, and you guys were one of the worst teams in baseball. How difficult was it for you to stomach all of the losing towards the end of your career after all the winning that you had been part of? Well, it's it's not fun to go to the ballpark, and when it's not fun, you can't enjoy yourself, and you might as well get out. I mean, if you can't enjoy yourself playing, that's the time to leave, and it wasn't fun. We had the ownership change you know, internally. It didn't wasn't sold. It wasn't sold until after the 79 season, and that's when I knew it was time to go, but, uh, you know, it just is not the same. Baseball is there to have fun win some games, enjoy yourself, love New York, and go about your business. But, um, you know, it's tough. And right now, I'm sure the ball club is, is struggling, and, uh, you know, they're looking forward to rebuilding in a hurry. New York is a tough town when you do lose, but uh, the Mets are trying, and uh, they keep trying to put things together, different players, and they'll come up with an answer. Or they've got a good owner. Good ownership over there. Mr. Cohn is trying his best. He's putting his money where his mouth is. And, uh, you know, he's spending his money. And, and just the players are not producing right now. So he's got to do something. And that's what they're trying. When Tom Seaver is traded, it is kind of seen as the darkest moment in franchise history. It is certainly the end, spiritually, of the 69 and 73 teams. And it really plunges the, the team into darkness for a while. What was it like to be a teammate and to watch the franchise be traded away? Well, you just looked around and you saw all these players being moved and you knew well, you could be part of that. And that was something I didn't want to happen. I love New York. I wanted to stay here, but uh, things were moving around. And when you trade the franchise uh, on the team, you know, you either get great players for them or, or you don't. I think the Mets made a bad trade with that. Uh, Tom Seaver, they picked up four players that Cincinnati wanted to give us. And that's not the way to trade Tom Seaver. So you knew things could happen. So it wasn't fun to be around there to see all your friends that you grew up with started being dismantled. And uh, the road trips were not fun anymore. Did that suck the heart out of the team when you when they traded away Seaver? I think what sucked the heart out of the Mets was us losing you know, the seventh year, sixth game of the series against Oakland. We should have won that. We're up 3-2 to two going to Oakland with two games to play and our two best pitchers lined up to, to pitch, and we lose. You know, it took a lot out of us, and we never were the same. We never came back. We never really tried to win a pennant. We were trying, but uh, the results were not there. You know, the 86 team came around and they won and the Met organization rebuilt itself. And, you know, now you just have to root for them as a fan. It's different to win in New York. I mean, that's why we do this show, New York Accent. It's just different to win in New York. 
what was the energy like around a victory? You guys did Canyon of Heroes parade down Broadway. What what are those? What is that experience like to do it in New York? Well, there's no no better experience because the people will be out there. They'll support you for anything. They'll come any place, anywhere. They'll they'll show up. They'll have fun. They'll enjoy themselves, and uh, you know it's great to be around because they don't let you forget. They want to talk about it. They're very vocal, the people in New York, and they're willing to come out and uh, support you. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Fifty years after the fact, you win a pennant in '69. They're still talking about it. If it happened last week, the older guys are telling the young guys exactly what happened. So. You know, it's always fun to walk around in New York. That's why I came back from Florida, wanted to be in New York, see my friends talk about the good old days and go on from there. One of the most amazing stories about your life is you needed a kidney transplant, and that was made possible by a Mets fan donor. How did that connection come about? Well, you know, we couldn't get one, and it looked like uh, time was running out. We were getting down to the point where I needed dialysis and the you know, we had to do something. So the Mets got behind me and helped me. They gave me a tremendous amount of publicity. Mr. Wilpont and the family, you know, controlled the ball club, really reached out. And uh, we had the miracle. Somebody came out and it uh, was a perfect match for myself. And it worked out well. And we got involved in that. And the second miracle was, was my wife uh, came down and uh, she got sick. And uh, we had a miracle with her. She beat uh, prostate cancer, which was tremendous. And, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, having a lot of good days together. So I had two miracles in the last two years. So I didn't think we'd have another one. So I wrote a book and told about the good times with the Mets and just life going on. Life is good, Fred Cranepool? Well, it certainly is after two miracles. Uh, we both survived. And we're both here and we're having a good time together. The book is The Last Miracle, as the 18-year journey of Ed Cranepool throughout the amazing New York Mets organization. He has written a brand new book. It is available right now, including on Kindle and hardcover at Amazon.com. He is the all-time leader in games played for the New York Mets. He's third all-time in hits for the New York Mets and played 18 seasons with the franchise, the only franchise he ever played with. Ed, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with the book. Okay, I look forward to the fans reading it and enjoying it as much as I had. Thank you. Thanks to Ed Cranepool for joining us here on New York Accent. Good to go back in Mets history and hear about that crazy trajectory where you start as a teenager, 17 years old, and there is nothing. There's no Mets team. It's an expansion squad. You've never seen them play. They've never had a uniform on. And then you join a squad with all these old guys that are brought in basically to market to fans. And you're terrible. 120 losses terrible. Like one of the worst teams ever in franchise history. Let alone one of the worst teams in modern baseball history. And then you watch seven years later winning the World Series. How your life completely changes and then after 73, how everything kind of dissipates and evaporates and breaks apart because the team goes into that downward spiral and a lot of, a lot of guys get old and they don't, they don't get replaced. And the managerial spot with the Ogie Berra does not end up bearing more fruit after 73. And then they trade Tom Seaver and there is just a wilderness, the vast wilderness of the late 70s, early 80s for the Mets. 
is preceded by what Ed Cranepool was watching, a kind of a slow deterioration into the, the late 70s. But all of that happens in one wonderful baseball life. And it was really nice that Ed could share all of those stories with us and take us back in time to uh, a moment where the Mets were nothing, then everything, and then back to nothing, unfortunately. I also want to thank Ken Singleton for last week's conversation about the New York Yankees. These are two baseball teams that are unfortunately in the middle of disastrous seasons. But for the Yanks, Mets fans have been relegated to this fate for a few months now. For Yankees fans, this has come crashing down over the last couple of weeks. And Singleton's commentary on the Yankees really struck a nerve. We had so much positive feedback about Ken. We had record numbers on YouTube watching the conversation. That's at WFAN's YouTube channel. And I think a lot of Yankee fans had missed the voice of Ken over the last couple of years. You know, he was a part of Yankees telecast for 25 years on both Yes and before Yes, WPIX back in the late 90s. And Singleton just has a voice of reason, a voice of composure, but also has a lifetime in baseball. So he knows what he's watching. And he sees a team that as he pointed out, has just made some really bad, stupid baseball IQ decisions. And he pointed out the fact that, you know, this is a, a franchise that sometimes is buried by its own history and where everything is kind of compared to the great years, they can kind of um, succumb and kind of get buried by that. And that was an interesting observation from Ken Singleton. And then also just his stories about not even being a Yankee ever in his career, but being so familiar with the organization because, he grew up here in New York, and he played youth baseball in the Bronx, and he had family members that grew to know George Steinbrenner and his uncle specifically, and that led George to invite Ken's family to every Yankee game that when they hosted the Orioles, when when Ken was a member in Baltimore of the Orioles, and so there, there always grew this kind of bond, and then George tried to trade for him a couple of times, but the Orioles would not trade him away, and he was part of the 1983 World Series Championship, the last one in Orioles franchise history. So all of that just kind of added up into a, a really wonderful conversation. If you missed it, it is last week's episode of New York Accent, and that's available every place that you get your podcast. But I think Yankee fans specifically had longed to hear from a familiar voice on the wreckage of this season, and Ken was perfect, perfect timing for that. There was so much great response from our listeners and, and we appreciate that and I know that that Ken does as well so that'll do it for this episode of New York Accent as always you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform wherever it is that you get your pod just find New York Accent and hit subscribe that helps you get all of them and you can go back and listen to the entire catalog of New York Accent episodes time to turn the page to football here shortly because the baseball season is just about up in smoke and it's not even September yet, but I think it's it's full-on time to go football at this point in time, and so we will focus on Jets and Giants and the players that played here in New York or are from New York on the gridiron coming up here in, in coming weeks. Until then, thanks so much for downloading and listening and watching to New York Accent again on the YouTube channel for the WFAN page. And... Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman. I'm DA Damon Amendolari. You can usually catch me weekday mornings across the CBS Sports Radio Network. Until next week, this is New York Accent, an original Odyssey series.